Welcome to another episode of the CC Podcast Conversations, where inspiring Christians share their faith-filled stories. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. This helps push our content to a broader audience. Are you new to listening? Check out our other podcasts. First, the CC Podcast Daily Dose Devotions, where we're walking through the Bible, focusing on short clips of Scripture. Second is the CC Broadcast, where our weekly radio programming is archived. These podcasts are available wherever you're listening or at christiancrusaders.org. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Here's our host, Matt Reister, the Executive Director of Christian Crusaders. Matt Reister here with Andrew Nordstrom. We've got a great interview with Alfred Zika, who is a Liberian native. His family lives in Waterloo, and he splits time between here in Iowa and Liberia doing ministry. In fact, one of his daughters is on my daughter's volleyball team at Waterloo Christian School. Mm-hmm. Cool interview, wasn't it? It was amazing. It honestly just blew me away. Um, the number of things uh, that, that God has put in this guy's path and, and, and kind of... Uh, it, like you said, providential. Uh, it's and and I'm really excited for people to be able to hear this interview because there's so much. It's it's fascinating. It's interesting, um, and it's it's filled with opportunities for action. We interviewed him. I interviewed him the first day of the Cedar Falls Bible Conference back on July, August first, I believe it would have been, and I had just heard about Alfred's story a week or two beforehand from Joyce, Joyce Barbati, who leads. TJ's Christian bookstore. She was at a meeting that Alfred was at, told his story. She called me up, said, Matt, I know it's late. Is there any room on the Bible conference schedule for you to get this guy to talk? Because his story is amazing. And I checked it out with a couple other people. And we ended up just squeezing in this live podcast interview at the event center, which wasn't one of the main sessions, but quite a few people stuck around. And uh, we had to do it like that because the very next day, Alfred was out the door to Liberia. Right, talk about providential again in a probably in a slightly lesser way than some of the stories he's got, but yeah, being able to to squeeze him in right before he he flew back to Liberia to 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 keep going with the church planning mission was it was really cool, and I'm glad that that people got the chance to hear it. He's planting churches. They've got an orphanage for kids over there. He's opened a Bible college or a Bible school for people to get theology degrees. Um, you referenced the providential nature of his life and his ministry. It's crazy how he met this missionary from Wisconsin, right? Randomly, who he got a phone number from, wrote it on a wall, and years later, when war broke out and he needed to get out of there, he the number is yeah. still on the wall. Calls the guy. Yeah, the guy's able to get him out of Liberia. And that's just one of the crazy stories of, right. that has led to him doing what he's doing. And, and what popped into my head when he when he told that story is is in Daniel and the writing on the wall, right? And, <laughs> and, and here, this guy's—he's literally just like who 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 writes it? Like you write it on your hand, you write it in a date book. Who goes home and, and writes? Oh yeah, I got to remember this guy's phone number. I got to write it up on my wall, you know. But look at what it did. I mean, look at where that was part of God's plan, and it led led to some some amazing things. Another really cool moment in the interview. If you could see the video, and you'll hear it in the in the interview. But uh, he was talking about how this guy who he randomly met when he was fishing, and his this guy's truck got stuck, so he helped him get his truck unstuck. It ends up being this missionary from Wisconsin who he would later, years later. It was phone number. It was that's, the phone that's number. That's the number yeah. he got. But he said this guy bought him his first Coke ever, Coca-Cola. Yeah. And uh, so we there's a concession stand in the back of the 
the uh, event center. <laughs> so I had Dan. Dan, you got to get a Coke up here for yeah. this guy. So he's drinking Coke and burping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was wonderfully authentic. Uh, it just you got to see the whole interview. Really, it was this this guy Alfred is just. You can tell that's who he is, right? He's not putting on a show. He's not putting on a facade. It's just, it was a, a great, just like you said, raw. He's <laughs> burping during the middle of drinking Coke. doesn't matter. He just kept talking, and, and it was great to hear his story. One of the things that when I do these interviews, sometimes I know the story really well mm-hmm. going into it, and other times I don't at all. And this was a time when I knew a little bit of Alfred's story, but I didn't know all of it. And so I was sitting there you know, kind of hearing a lot of this for the first time and responding to it and uh, just fascinating. He's leading a ministry that has just recently been established here in Waterloo or Cedar Falls called Greater Grace Ministries of Liberia. There's a retired dentist in town named Dr. Brian Bauck who is kind of helping him help, helping him set that up. It's a 501c3. They're setting that up so they can raise money to support his ministry in a way that's tax deductible for donors. But... Uh, Great, great work there. And uh, yeah, do you remember how much it costs to plant a church yeah. in Liberia? Fifteen hundred dollars, fifteen hundred bucks to to. I mean, just think of the impact that that's. And, and I, I I say that now, and and that sounds crazy, but just wait until you hear the full interview and the full story, and and just hear from Alfred's own mouth exactly what that fifteen hundred bucks does, and it just it's shocking. It seems like. It seems like a bargain, right? I mean, that's, that's, it's crazy. When I was sitting there listening to that, I mean, I was just like 1500 bucks. Now, what's interesting is I'm part of a couple different ministries that frankly need money. Christian Crusaders being one of them, the Bible sure. Conference being another one. But I'm like, 1500 bucks plant a church? Like, where do I send the check? Yep, exactly. You know, it's incredible. Exactly. Yeah, and and I'm I'm hopeful that somebody listening uh, to this will be inspired. You don't have to give fifteen hundred, but even a part of that, uh, even a tenth of that, one hundred fifty bucks, be uh, one tenth of the way to, to starting another church, or even helping this guy that he, he mentions that that uh, they don't have a website up and running yet. You know, so if if somebody feels led after hearing this, um, you know, help the guy get a website going, or, or you know, get one tenth of a church or, or something. Get a one percent of a church, fifteen dollars. That's lunch money. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. You're going to enjoy this. Alfred Zeka, it's Z-E-K-E-H, which I guess you probably know because you saw the title of this podcast before you clicked on it. But uh, good stuff. Liberia, God's at work there, and we're excited to be able to share the story with you. So thanks for tuning in. My name is Matt Reister, and I'm the director of the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. And I'm the director of Christian Crusaders Radio and Internet Ministry. And I've got the privilege today to interview Alfred Zika. Am I saying that right? You're saying that quite correct. Zika. What does it mean? Do, your, do yours while you're alive. What is it? Do your portion while you are alive. Do your portion while you're alive. That's yeah. what Zika means? Uh-huh. That's providential. Play your part while you're alive. That's great. So, Alfred Zika, I've known you for a couple years two, three years. Uh, you live in the Cedar Valley, and you also split time between here with your family and Liberia, where you are a pastor, a church planter, and you run a Bible college, and you're starting a ministry called Greater Grace Ministries of Liberia. Yes. So that's a lot on your resume. Let me explain how we even got here today. So 
you're just getting ready to go back to Liberia. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. And so Joyce Barbati, if you don't know Joyce, she runs TJ's Christian Bookstore. She's back in the corner there. And Joyce has been known from time to time to give me an idea uh, for somebody I should have on a podcast or somebody who we might want to have at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. And honestly, that happens quite a bit. And a lot of times I don't really take it seriously because usually it's somebody whose grandson is a really good musician or whatever. And I'm sure they are, right? But, I mean, you just can't say, oh, okay, I'll take your word for it. Let's line them up. But Joyce is a reliable source. And Joyce had just been at a meeting with you recently in the last two weeks, maybe? Yes. At Brian's house. Yeah, I'm Brian Howe. And uh, she said, Matt you got to hear Alfred's story. I said, well, I've heard some of Alfred's story. She said, well, I was just at this thing. He's going to Liberia. If there's any place for him in the Bible conference, I think you should consider it. No pressure, but if it works out, great. And so, I mean, Joyce is a reliable source. She's not going to feed us any bad information. And so that kind of immediately puts you ahead. Plus the interactions that we had had earlier, you already had left a good taste in my mouth with that. I tend to be very critical and very, um, I always... Some would call it glasses half empty. I just say it's reality. I mean, <clears throat> it's not as bad as my wife described somebody one time as not even glasses half empty, but melted ice cubes. <laughs> I'm not that bad. But uh, so then my next call was actually to Brian. And I, Brian Bauk is helping you with this organization that you're leading. We'll talk more about that later. Greater Grace Ministries of Liberia. Uh, retired dentist from the Cedar Valley, has been involved in ministry and some other things, been really helpful out here at the Bible Conference grounds, painting walls and doing whatever needs to be done, along with his wife, Shirley, which we appreciate. And I called Brian and said, okay, I got a call from Joyce, who I trust. Now I'm calling you, who I trust. Should we do this? And Brian kind of told me about what you were doing. And then my next call, I think, was to you and say, hey, will you do this? And you were, uh, you were accommodating uh, just at the last minute, as you're getting ready to get out of the country, um, I went online and searched either your name on YouTube or your ministry, and, and there was a testimony that popped up, maybe a three or four minute testimony that uh, you must have just recently cut, because it had Greater Grace Ministries on it. Yeah. And fascinating story. Just tell us about how you got started, just your life. I mean, you've got an incredible family of origin story. And that's not where it ends, but let's start there. So I um, look at myself in light of, or let's say I look at myself as a miracle person. I can't say chai anymore because I'm <laughs> older than I was when the miracle started. Um, I was born in a pagan home. Pagan home, meaning my father was not close to being a believer. He was a man of six wives. My mother was the least of the six. Um, and she was the youngest. And she was their servant. She was like a slave wife. Time out a second. You said this in your testimony. You said your yep. mother was the least of the six. Yep. What does that mean? She was the youngest or... She was the youngest and the last to be brought in, in my father's home as his wife. And anybody who was brought at that time and at that age has no right in the house. Okay. She has no place in the house. And so do 
A lot of men have six wives, or was your dad someone special, or what? A lot of men in Africa do have six wives, but my dad was a chief. He, they call him chief, paramount chief. So <laughs> chiefs always had so many wives. Hmm. Okay, go ahead. I mean, so it was a whole struggle. I mean, hate was at its peak in that home, and... Me and my mother was subjected to hatred and all kinds of things. And before I was born, five big brothers of mine were born in the house by my mother. And they all mysteriously died. I don't know how that happens, but in Africa, now I can tell that the reason my five big brothers who were born before me died was because... When the man dies or when the father dies, the boy children or the boy's children take over their father's property. And I am, I am, uh, they were being born by a woman who is nobody in this house. All of my, all of, all of my father's wives were bringing forth women. My mother was the only person who had the audacity to bring forth boys in that house. So boys were a challenge boys, to the men? Yeah, they were challenged and they were afraid that my mother's boys were going to take over everything that they have accumulated with their husband, my father, when he dies. And they were all bringing forth women, not boys. And so they all died, five. So my uh, aunt comes from Monrovia, the capital city, to come spend Christmas with us. And she sees my mother and then she goes, you look like you're pregnant. And this pregnancy you have, the baby you're carrying, has got to survive. So I'm taking you with me to Monrovia. You will stay there and you will bring forth this child. And this child has the right to live. It was me. So my aunt took me, took my mother with her. My mother stayed in Monrovia with her 375 miles away from the village. And that's where I was born. That's why I had a chance to live. And that's why I'm alive today. As I was growing up, before I became, just before I became a teenage boy, my father passed away. All the other wives had gone back to their villages and their family people because there was no more men in the house to fend for them. My mother was the only brave woman to stay in that house. So she sent to my uh, aunt that I go back in the interior, I go back to our village and help her to take care of what is left and to fend for food for her. So I go back up interior and on this day I'm standing by the roadside and I'm fishing. Looking for little fishes like this size so we can have soup for the day. While I'm standing there, no fish is grabbing the hole. I see this old British Land Rover Jeep comes and passes me by. And the, the worst part of the road, the muddy part of the road was not too far from where I was standing and fishing. And they got stuck in the mud. And I turned around and saw that all these white people wanted to, to go someplace, but they're stuck in the mud. So I ran past them by, went to town, and got some friends of mine. About 15 of us came, and we pushed their, their jeep out of the mud. And they turned around and said to me, and, said, and invited my friends and I to get on the, on the jeep with them to go to town so they can treat us for being nice. My friends stuck to the bush anyways because they've never seen so many white people like that in our village. Mm. I was the only one who agreed to get on the, on the jeep with them to, drive, to be driven to town. So we got to town 
And everybody who saw me in the midst of these white people are running to my mother and telling my mother, your son is finished. He's going to be no more. He is in the middle of all white people. So we went to town and they asked me, what do you want? You want Coke? I don't even know what a Coke is. I've never held a bottle of Coke by myself before. The only taste of Coca-Cola I had was when government ministers go in our town and they have programs, the empty bottle of Coke they put on the ground, we take this bottle one by one and we turn them upside down. That's a taste of flat Coke that we knew. On this day, they bought me my first bottle of Coke. Time out. Hey, Dan, you got to get a couple of Cokes up here for this deal. Yeah, I'm serious. What's Break. wrong with you people? No Coke here? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Sorry. So, I got the Coke in my hand. I really want to keep this Coke for 10, 5 years, if possible, as a souvenir. The biggest thing that has ever happened in my hometown is going on with me. And they asked me, do you want to receive Christ as your personal Savior? I look at the pastor among the group and I said, is he crazy? You just bought me my first bottle of Coke in life. You made me to be looked at in this town like a president. You're asking me if I want to receive Christ as my personal Savior. Whoever he is, bring him on. So the lady hands on me. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Can I take a sip, please? Yes. <laughs> Can't let that go. So they, um, they decided you know, to lay hands on me and to pray to help to lead me to receive Christ. So as they all went over me and laid their, their, their white hands over me, I had another group running to my mother again. Your son is finished. The white people are choking all on him. Their hands are on him. He's oh, in their midst. Wow. He, he, you, you can never have that boy. Me not knowing... The greatest thing that has ever gone on in a man's life was going on in my life. Hmm. I accepted Christ on this day. The pastor wrote his telephone number and gave it to me and said, Call me if you need anything for your growth. Right after they left, the 17 years of civil war broke out in my country. I wrote the telephone number with a piece of charcoal on a muddy African war. And that number was there. For a long time. Until I had to leave to go to the Avricos across the border from Liberia into refuge so that I can live. So Because boys were being caught by force to go to the battlefront and to fight. Hang on a second. Yes. So I want to understand two things that you've covered so far. Uh -huh. Were these British white guys, were they missionaries or were they just Christians working in... Liberia or what? They were not British people, but they were, they were driving British uh, Land Rover. But they were missionaries from here. And the pastor that gave me that telephone number is from Wisconsin. Wow. Chuck Warnicky. Chuck Warnicky. Okay, so I was going to ask about the number. Yes. Is the picture in that video actually the number on the wall, or is that a, just a, a stock no, picture? No, that is a different village right there. Okay. So, but you, you got his number, and you wrote it on a wall. Yep. And it was a long time there. Yeah, because that house is going to be there forever. As long as the house is standing up, I got the number. <laughs> if my kids write a number on my wall, I, that, we ain't playing that. But I understand. 
So, uh, your walls are different from muddy walls in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> so, when the time came because the Civil War broke out, for you to need help, you had this number. Yes. D- did you ever, I mean, maybe you can't remember this, but did you ever think you would need the number? Or did you just write it down thinking, okay, I'm going to write it down. But, and then later you're like, because you, you would have seen it on the wall many times. Mm-hmm. In the back of your mind, were you thinking, I'm going to call this guy sometime? Or were you just, you forgot about it? I forgot about it completely. I just went by run, at randomly sometimes and I saw the number and I said, ah, this is nothing. And it but was the then, same number? Yes, it was the same number. But then when the Civil War started and young men and young boys were being recruited by force to take arms, my mother looked me in the eyes and one night she woke up in the middle of the night and she said, you got to get out of here and you got to get out of here tonight. Wow. First thing my mind went on was, I said, where, where do I go? She said, a lot of people are walking, going by bush to the Avra Coast. First thing I wanted was that number on that wall. Wow. When I get across the border, somebody I can call. Wow. So I wrote the number down on a piece of paper and I put it in my socks. Because they will charge you, they will take your shoes off and they catch you, they will take your pants off and leave you naked to go. So I stuck it in my socks. And that socks was not looking like anything anybody can take from my feet because my toes were all out anyways. Mm. So that paper survived. I put it in the plastic and I put it in my socks and it survived. And I got to the Avricos with that number and I called Chuck. He goes, who was this? And I described my and I described myself to him decades back. He go, "Oh my God! Wow! How was your walk with Christ? It wasn't all that perfect, and I didn't know how to describe a perfect walk. But I said, good. But I need to go to Ghana from the Africa Coast to go to Bible College and Seminary. I want to be a preacher. Some days when the war is over, I want to go back home and plant churches. He said, "What do you need to do that?" I said. I need money to get on the bus and go to Ghana. He sent the money to me. The next day, I got the money from Western <clears throat> Union. I got on the bus, and I went to Ghana. Chuck Warnicky. Yes. So you've obviously reconnected with him more in depth. Yes. He's still alive. He's so old. He's st- yeah, he's an old man now, but he's still alive, yes. And, and he was a pastor in Wisconsin who just happened to be in Liberia or he was a missionary in He went Liberia as a, a missionary to Liberia just before the war started. So one of the things, and now there's more details that I didn't know until just now, but as I've learned your story, it's just rippled with the providence of God. So your mom is the sixth out of six. Mm-hmm. She's also the only one that bears boys, mm. Right compared to these others that are having girls, yep. who determines the gender of a baby? The, the Lord. Lord, right? Yep, the Lord. Huh? And, and then this war breaks out, but you're fishing by a guy who gets stuck in the mud and randomly. So that has to bring you, I would think, a certain level of confidence and comfort, having lived that to where you're at now, that just, I got a call Friday morning that the band that was supposed to play last night mm-hmm. wasn't going to be able to come because mm-hmm. somebody got sick, which is not what a conference director really wants to hear, right? Mm-hmm. And, but I haven't had experiences like you have, but I've had experiences that have taught me 
that God is sovereign. And so when Rick was telling me, the guy in the band, I'm sorry, he felt terrible. I said, Rick, the Lord knew this was going to happen before we did. It's going to be fine. Hmm. Just talk a little bit as an aside about your understanding of the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, and how that equips or empowers you to do ministry. So let me bring you one recent and striking story. There is this little girl. She is, a, she is the daughter of an imam. Her mother died. The wife of this imam died when this girl was a baby. The imam takes his daughter. He treasures his daughter so much. He takes his daughter and sends his daughter to live with one of his relatives in Monrovia. And this little girl happens to be a classmate to one of our orphan girl. So our orphan girl, you know, click with her so much. She goes to school every day and she shares with her whatever she brings from our house. She comes home one time and she goes, um, I need you to double my break money for every day. I said, what are you talking about? You know how we live here. I said, why do you want me to do that? She said, there's a friend of mine in the class. She never brings any food to church every day. So I have to split the little I have for her, and I come home hungry every day. Hmm. And this is an orphan girl who does not have a father, who does not have a mother. We've been taking care of her from baby. I never want to hear she's hungry. I never want to hear anything touched her. So I said... I'm going to find this money and I'm going to give it to you, but I'm going to give it to you with a, Christ, with a Christian literature every day. Hmm. And you make sure she reads it. She goes, yeah. Then I'll even go with her under the tree and make sure she reads it. Hmm. And then I give it to her the next day. She made sure her friend read it. After a few weeks, she said, I want to invite my friend to church because the girl was opening up to Christ so much. She is a Muslim. She was born as a Muslim. She grew up as a Muslim. And Muslim Islam is all she knows. I said, no, you do not invite Muslim to a straightforward church setting. So in a few days, I hustle for money everywhere. And I stage a food fellowship program at our house. And I said, now this is when you can invite your friend. Just tell her, my dad said, and the church people said, you should come to our house and eat with us. Hmm. And I, told, I contacted most of the ladies in our church and told them exactly what I want her to hear. And I told them to hang out with her and show her love like she's never been loved before. So she comes over and everybody is smiling. Everybody is eating. They're bringing her gift. They're telling her, do you know Jesus loves you? In tears, she broke down and she accepted Christ as a personal savior. Hmm. After a week or two, she goes back to her village when they give them vacation. And before she could go to the village, she comes over to my daughter and she goes, Your dad is a very happy man. Is that how you, is that how you people always are here? You guys look so happy. She grew up in a Muslim home. They don't know what happiness is. They don't know what fellowship is, what freedom is. So when she saw that, she was captivated by it. She said, I want your dad to come and make my dad to think like him. And her dad's an imam. He's, he's, a, life, he's a lifelong, traditional imam. He's untouchable. And that's all he knows. In this big town of 500,000 people, he is the only imam. And Islam is the only thing that exists in this town underneath his command. 
So when she said that to me, I said, no, I am a pastor. I cannot walk through the town to go to an imam to lead him to my belief. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an insult. He's going to defend himself or whatever he has. He's going to drop me from the town. He's the most powerful guy. You can do this. She goes, what? I say, yes, you can because you are his only daughter and he loves you so much mm. and he cannot but to agree with whatever you said, whatever his little girl says. So I told her, I said, go tell your dad there's going to come a time in your life, in the both of your lives, you will be somewhere. He cannot have access to you. You cannot have access to him. And you don't know what's, what, what you're going to want. You don't know what's going to happen to you if you can't have access to him and he can have access to you. So this is your only worry now. And let him ask you questions. And when he asks you questions, you answer it this way. Answer it this way. Answer it this way. Then he asked the girl, he said, who told you those things? She said, the, the people in Monrovia who are helping me with food and clothing. Then he sat there and he said, can you call this man right now? Can you tell him to come over? And this is miles and miles away from Monrovia. I need gas. I need transportation. I need all of that. I need to put the requisite team together to go there. So him and his daughter go to this mountain where there's a cell phone coverage. They pay for the call to call me and tell me to come to the village. I did not argue. I said, I'm on my way. I look for money where I can't find money. God provided. We put gas in the truck. We, got, we hit the road. We went there and he asked me some questions. And I said, exactly what your daughter told you. It's what is going to happen between families who have accepted Christ as their personal Savior. Mm -hmm. And the ones who have not accepted Christ as their personal Savior. Exactly. I did not say it. This is where it said in the Bible. And this is what it says in the Bible. In tears, this lifelong imam, unbelievably, in front of my naked eyes, broke down. And I had to almost dress to him to hold his shoulder up. He got so weak, like he was so frail. He needed something that I couldn't give it to him. Only God could give it to him. He accepted Christ as his personal savior hmm. on that day. And I left and went to town. I flew and came here to the States. And they sent me a message that he said he needs a transportation he needs to get out of that village, not no longer than today. Hmm. And I look, I, I, I send them someplace to go get the, tra the, trans the transportation, and they sent the money to him, and he got on the car. He's in Monrovia as we speak. He's living in my house as we speak. Hmm. I'm feeding him as we speak. Hmm. He says he wants to go back to his home village as a pastor and not as an imam to start a church. When I get, when I put my feet down from the plane, that's the first village we're going to plant a church. Hmm. That's awesome. Is that not God's providential way? Amen. Yeah. I mean, a great example of the providence of God. Yeah. So a couple questions. Go ahead. This imam who's like in charge of 500,000 people, why doesn't his daughter have food? He trusted a family member of his and sent his daughter. She said... She's going to be taken care of well. 
she's going to be well taken care of. And she was only bringing this little girl to town to make her sell markets for her, to mm. trade, to use her to make money. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't put any of the money she made, the little girl made, on her welfare, mm. not to even feed her. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, he, and he's a single imam. So he doesn't have a wife with him who would say, let's send this to our daughter in town. Yeah. What is an imam exactly in the hierarchy of Islam? Yeah. What? He, he is the preacher. He is the reverend. He is the, he is the everybody go to in the town. He is the thinker for the people. He is the command giver. He is, they are so legalistic. Till even something they have no obvious answer for, they pretend to have answer for those. Mm -hmm. Imam is nothing as compared to a finished work preaching pastor. They, they portray themselves out there as the strong ones. Mm -hmm. Because they are perpetrating their arm. Um, at the same time, their hands are in witchcraft attitude and, and voters. Mm -hmm. This is one question he asked me. Can you go to my village in my attic and take all that is in the black box and get rid of it? That's how I know that. In case you're wondering how I managed to know. They perpetrate the Quran and witchcraft attitude and voodoo activities at the same time. So people give him respect as an imam. And they also are afraid of him because his hands are into voodoo attitudes. So did he want you to go take that out of his attic because he's afraid of it and he doesn't want to touch it or what? And I, and I went there and did just that. Took it out, put gasoline on it, and we burned it. We prayed before we touched it. We brought it out, we put gasoline on it, we burned it, and the town was in absolute short. Hmm. So I worked with a guy who was the arabic ministry director for an online ministry that i helped run we talked about that online ministry mm -hmm. uh a few years ago and paul omari that's he's from morocco that's not his muslim name mm -hmm. but after he came to christ he said i figured i should change my name just like paul did from saul and so i just picked the name paul picked <laughs> so his name's paul and um paul visited me for about a week and we did a bunch of different events around Iowa where he would kind of share his testimony. He's got an amazing testimony about how he came out of Islam and now is this leader doing online ministry into the unreached you know, nations of the world that are Muslim, mm. pr primarily Arabic Muslim. And as I heard him give his testimony eight, ten times that week as we traveled around and met with different groups of people. I asked him one time when we were having lunch at Pizza Hut. I said, Paul, uh, what has struck me about Islam, I, I basically had a crash course in Islam for a week. And I heard him tell his story over and over and I heard people ask questions in his response. And so I learned about Islam that week. I said, this religion is paper thin. The The it's so easy to defeat. I mean, it's just, how are a billion plus people doing this? One of the stories he said was he was a very inquisitive young man. And so his dad was a very serious Muslim. And he would, you know, made the family be Muslim and do all these things that Muslims do. You know, uh, observe all the 
fasts and the holidays and the prayers. And he said, I would always ask my dad questions about why are we doing this? And he said, one example was, he said, they always had to pray toward Mecca. And he would say, if, why do we have to pray toward Mecca? If God is big and created the universe, he could probably hear my prayer if I face the other direction. And that is one of the five creeds of Islam. And so, exactly. This, is, this isn't just one little thing. This is like very, very important. And his dad's answer every time he raised a question like that was, don't ask questions. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of dawned on me, these people, if that's what they've been raised in, do not ask questions. Questions are off limits. Mm-hmm. And you have to just do what we do because I'm your dad and I said so. Yep. Then you can start to understand how a billion people in really a, a patriarchal culture where mm-hmm. whatever dad says happens, mm-hmm. yep. including kill the five boys that were born before Alfred. Yep. You didn't say that, but I'm reading between the lines. Yep. Um, it's a little easier to understand how the deception of Islam has had such apparent success mm-hmm. in our world. Talk more about Islam and, and what you're seeing in terms of... So this imam and this... Are most of the people that you're reaching with the gospel raised in, an, in a Muslim setting? Yes. And, and also, give us a little bit of the background. Liberia is tied to America in some ways, at least constitutionally. Monrovia is named after James Monroe. Yep. Your flag has stars and stripes on it. Yep. Um, so how did there come to be so many Muslims in Liberia, and how is the ministry that you're doing impacted by that? Okay. So, there's a lot there, but you can cover that. Yeah, so we have, we have 15 counties in Liberia. We call it here states. And of the 15 counties... There is one that borders Sierra Leone, which has close to 90% Islam or Muslims. So they intermarry, you know, in between each other. They are one of the reasons why Muslims infiltrated Liberia, because they travel from Freetown, Sierra Leone, freely and cross the water and just come and live like Liberians. Liberians, we had so much... Um, we, we had so much that was intended to make us a Christian, na- a Christian nation. Our constitution, part of our constitution says we are established on a Christian principle. But Sierra Leone is close to 90% Islam. Guinea, right by Liberia, by Liberian border, is also close to 90% Muslim. Then you go to... Uh, uh, the Avricos, Avricos is also just that way. Now, because of the high percentage of Islam in Sierra Leone, in Guinea, and in the Avricos, and even in Gambia and Guinea-Bissau, who are somewhat close to Liberia, people there, or uh, Muslims there, or from other countries, now come and sit in those country and send their tributaries evangelists into Liberia because it is known as a nominal land. It's known as a place that might have a lot of room to accept Islam. And so, but Islam itself, Muhammad, they would, not, they would never like to hear this. Islam itself, 
Muhammad is on his way to Jerusalem to see Jesus' people and to fellowship with them. And he died in the cave along the road. But before he left, he was almost sure that he was not going to return. Because for a staunch Muslim to leave his territory and go to Jerusalem to fellowship with believers, he was not sure if he was going to make it back alive. Before he left, this is what he told his followers. Anything happens to me, the guys who followed Jesus in Jerusalem, they got the real book. Wow. Follow them. Surah 95, Surah 86 makes that very clearly. Makes that very clear. So, and, and Muslim, no. Sometimes, some of the things I tell my Muslim friends is, our God said, vengeance is mine. But you guys say, I will put bomb everywhere on me, and I will blast innocent people, and I will go to heaven for killing people. Our Bible in John 3.16 and 149 other verses says, Believe in Jesus, sacrifice on the cross, and you shall have access to heaven. Mm. So which of the two is at the expense of an innocent person that a holy God will not like? Mm. If you can act on behalf of your God, then he is not a God because he needs help from a frail, sinful human being who can die anytime. We do not act on behalf of our God. He is more than able to abundantly act on our behalf. This is why he says, vengeance is mine. Mm. So all that thing is fiasco. But the, 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 real, the, the mean way you can evangelize Muslims these days, it's not by bringing the black and white to them. It's not by bringing the black and white in the Bible to them. It's by loving them. Once they take to you as a friend and as somebody who can love them, who cares about them, that's the first way you win them. When you win them over that way, you stuff the scripture in their throat, creatively, day by day. So earlier you were talking about how, I think when you were describing it with the girl or with the imam, you didn't tell them this verse says this or this verse says that. Did I understand you right? I went straight ahead through the Bible. I, said, I probably said a lot to him that night than I can remember. But th did you say that you didn't specifically point to Scripture, or you did? I did, I did, I did point out the Scripture, but the ones that are creative in showing and getting over someone who needs love from another religion over to Christianity. Yeah. I wasn't hard like this. The guy is in Bible college now. He has left his comfort zone. He is now at my mercy. When I get back, it will be time to butcher the enemy in him, not he himself. That's good stuff. Butcher yes. the enemy in him. Yes. Well, I mean, look, time is short. But eternity is so long. Yeah. I want to live the rest, the rest of the few years that I have on this earth in light of eternity, which is long. Amen. Charles Spurgeon said that. Amen. Uh, let's go back to the timeline now. I want to just kind of catch up. So... Uh, you call this Warnicky guy from yep. Wisconsin yep. during the war. You get to Bible college. Mm -hmm. And how long ago was that? And then what happened between then and now? It was from, uh, so I come from the Abercoast. That's the thing I like about Coke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It brings all the bubbles out. 
So the war started, and then I left Liberia in the 90s. I got to Ghana at the refugees camp of about 150,000 Liberians in the refugees camp. And the heat on this camp, you can feel it. You can literally feel it like you're feeling curtain. And the dust in the air. There's no safe drinking water, nothing. And just... What year is this, you think? This is 95. Okay. This is 94, 95. And this is like another Sodom and Gomorrah on earth. Wow. How can I survive in this kind of place? Providence. Some guys from Baltimore were in Accra, Ghana, and one of them were doing Bible study on the refugees camp, teaching survey of doctrine. Teaching what? Survey of doctrine, under that heat. What of doctrine? Survey of doctrine. Soviet doctrine. Ah, opportunistic, right? Yes. I mean, a, a course that surveys the doctrines, the different doctrines in the Bible. So survey of doctrines. Survey of doctrines, yes, not sir. Soviet. No, not, not okay. that. I knew, I knew you were misquoting me, and that's why I want to make it Good, clear. I'm glad you did. Uh, they were teaching a survey of doctrines. Yeah, a class. So I'm passing by, and it caught my attention, and I walked into this place. After the class, I'm asking questions. I was so inquisitive. I'm, I'm asking questions upon questions. And the guy hmm. walked over to me. He goes, I think God has a calling on your life. Hmm. Can you come to Tema? It's another city from far away from the refugees camp. Can you come to Tema and go to Bible college and seminar? I said, when can I come? Hmm. He gave me transportation. He said, come here, ask for Pastor Ennis. I got on the bus the next day. I rode to Tema and I asked for the guy. Hmm. And I said, where can I sleep? He said, there's nowhere here. Uh, you got a church building here. You got a benches. We can have church services and Bible school and Bible college classes. And uh, the cleaner you keep this place, the cleaner your room of dwelling will be. Because <laughs> you're dwelling here. Yeah. So <laughs> I am. So I went. They had new bathroom at the back. Where they had a bathroom, the bathroom was for the pastors. Where they had a bathroom is where I would take pieces of cottons and lay them down in the night and sleep. So the cleaner the bathroom, the better my room is. Hmm. When a pastor has to come to the bathroom, I get out. Hmm. So I was in that bathroom. I lived in that bathroom as my apartment for five and a half years until I graduated from Bible college. This is why, just for my Cedar Falls Bible Conference audience, I, I'm thrilled with the facility upgrades we've had, okay? And we're going to have more facility upgrades, Lord willing. But when we start going down the road, and, and I'm all for making this place look nice and be hospitable, but I never want to go too far down the road of like fancy schmancy. I mean, who needs that? You don't need that, right? We just need, what, what we need is people who preach the word. That's priority number one. And then a concrete floor and some new lights. Yeah, that'll be great, but that's never going to be the priority. Go ahead. And that's what cleans up a place anyway. That's, how, that's what cleans Amen. up. You know, the place of God anyways, the Amen. word of God, the solid doctrinal word of God. N- not any of these pr- prosperity preaching all over the place and crippling the next generation. Hmm. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Okay, okay. So, I mean, um, it is better that God carries me into a place where I would not be able to go by myself by availing myself to him to do so. So I'm living in that place and... 
Chuck Wernicke is paying the tuition of the Bible college and seminary I'm in, but I'm sleeping in the toilet. <laughs> Some friends of mine will come to me and go, uh, so they say you're going to Bible college? And I, was, I go, yeah. They say, Alfred, we were in school, high school. You were always the president of the class in the school. You were so outspoken, very bright. What happened? What came over you? Hmm. One of them said to me one time, you're going to die poor. Hmm. Unfortunately, he died many years ago. He passed me by in a convertible that he bought out of someone's money. He raked him off in another country and ran back to Liberia. He passed me by with a group of girls in a convertible. He slowed down and said, I, took, I was standing by the roadside waiting for a car to go to a Bible study. He slowed down, made mockery of me. He said, I told you you were going to die poor but for going to Bible college. He passed me by less than 15 minutes. I got a bus and I'm on it. We are cranked up in the bus, about 30 of us. And I saw the convertible has somersaulted already several times. There's blood all over the place. What happened here? He said, there was a guy in this brand new convertible. Him and all the girls died. We're looking for pieces of their head all over the place. Wow. I am not happy for that. But when you open your mouth hmm. on someone that God has planned for, on someone that God has planned for to carry his word into, into Jerusalem, into the Judea, into Samaria, into the uttermost part of the world. Then God will always come to the aid of that person. God is always going to strike. On the opposite end, we're looking for preachers these days that will go out there and preach to people and tell people that, you know, uh, hell is hot. Heaven is real. The word of God is true, and Jesus is the only way to salvation. The physical does not constitute the spiritual. Mm. You don't have the physical. Just keep doing it, and the spiritual is going to invite the spiritual. You lift me up high, I'll draw all kinds of men unto you. I'll draw all kinds of wealth unto you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. We talked about one of the first times we met, and I was telling you about the online ministry that we thought might work in your context. We never got anything done with that. But when we were talking about that, you, at some point in our conversation, made it clear to me that you had a pretty significant disdain for the prosperity gospel. And you also said that it's rampant where mm -hmm. you are. So there are a lot of preachers, maybe a lot of missionaries, maybe a lot of money going to support uh, ministries in places like Liberia that are promoting a false gospel. And uh, we talked about that. Explain what the prosperity gospel is. Explain what it looks like in Liberia. And explain, you kind of have a little bit, but how you're trying to counter that message with the true gospel. I would just say in short, it is a frame of word system without the Holy Spirit. Short, kiss close. Say it again. A frame of words system without the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just bobbling with nothing in it. Hmm. Nothing in it to benefit any, any believers. Over the years, we've tried to make our kinsmen to understand that in Liberia. A few of them are understanding it. They go so far. They get everything they want. They joy the happiness is not there. Had they been prepared in Bible college with the true gospel, they would not fall so hard like that. 
but mm. they follow the prosperity gospel and they get hurt and they get harmed by the prospect that they make, by the prosperity that comes in their way. Let me say this to you. If you're, that's why if your crawling kid or three years old kid asks you for a brand new razor blade, you ain't going to do that. If your little underage uh, child or grandchild asks you for a brand new BMW, you're not going to do that. God knows our capacity. Mm. When we humble ourselves and give ourselves to him, he give us at a time in life as we grow just things that we can carry. Just as 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, he will never tempt us beyond where we can carry it. But prosperity gospel is very ruthless. It's very unreasonable. They say you do not know how to operate with a brand new razor blade. You don't know how to fly a plane. But they pray for airplane for you. Mm-hmm. Very unrealistic. You, uh, I'm praying for you that some bangers will marry you. And you don't even know how to handle money. I'm praying for you that you will fly to America. You will f- fly to Britain. And you can't even... If an A is as big as that door, you can't. You don't even know it. How are you going to go to this country and survive? You can't do that. So mm-hmm. they're so much unrealistic, and this is what is destroying our societies today. But I am glad that in the midst of that, we have churches that come to us and say, "We learn you have a Bible. We ha- you have a Bible college and seminary here that is training church planters. Can we send group of our leaders?" And just this going June, we graduated about 121 Bible college and seminary students. So we're going to start rolling the ball again, the same way like that. And just train people, and just train people and graduate them and send them in towns and villages and different countries across the border to keep going. And we tell them, you know what? Any work done in God's way never lacks God's provision. Hmm. If you do it in the will of God, if you do it in God's way... It'll never lack God's provision. God will always provide, but it'll be at the right time. Mm. For 20 plus years, going to 30 years, we planted 30 churches in Liberia with our bare hands, with almost nothing. I do not know. Don't ask me how you did it. I don't know how it happened until we came here and met guys like Brian, Dr. Brian Buck, who have helped us to show us how we can get resources that can help us with the work in Liberia. And now... This is the time that I will covet your prayers because we did not have it before. It is beginning to look like we are going to have it soon. We are going to start having it soon. I need to stay humble. Hmm. I need to wake up 3 a.m. like I used to do when I didn't have it to read the Bible and to pray and to pray for people. I need to hit the door by 6 o'clock in the morning and come back at 10 p.m. in the night visiting people and teaching Bible school and going to villages having church services and doing everything that I used to do. I do not want to get arrogant. This is what happened to the prosperity gospel carriers. They take themselves and place them over people. Mm-hmm. They, even their own Bible, they can't carry it in their own car because they are so prosperous. They, they, they're not supposed to hold their own phones. Somebody holds it for them. Somebody opens the car door for them. They sit on the pulpit. They can't carry their own water bottle. Somebody got a ticket to them. Are you serious? So where is the Jesus? Jesus was lower than you are. You're too high. Hmm. Anybody who really wants to follow Jesus will see a big difference between you and Jesus. They would rather follow Jesus in a low laying place 
than to follow Jesus after you because you're not representing Jesus. On radio shows in Monrovia, I am not their friends at all. Other guy who is maybe one and a half older than me, he is the advisor to the president of the Republic of Liberia, said he prayed over somebody who had cancer and the, cancer, the person vomited the cancer uh, substance out. And he said the thing, it was like, it was a crap. It was a crab. Like, I told him, do you know how strong the pull of a crab is? Do you know how thin the layer of your intestine is? Do you know, can you tell me if you can survive, if your intestine can survive with a crab crawling inside your intestine? Do you know the circumference of a grown crab? Do you know the small, how small your intestine is? Do you know all of that? I am so shocked. What school did you go to? Did you go to elementary school? Did you do your science and biology, everything? Did you pass the course? This is this prosperity preacher, prosperity preacher. saying that he prayed a crab of cancer out of something. Yes, he did not like it at all. He did not like it. He sat there and texted some of the young people who carried his bag who were outside there to come in and, 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 and cause some trouble so that it showed because I was... Climbing on him to his throat. You're trying to kill the enemy inside him. I'm trying to kill the enemy inside of him. And that's how you do it. You don't do it by yelling. You do it by the scripture. Mm. You know? So talk about uh, your family. I don't know if you know this or not. Your daughter, Linda, yeah. was the manager for our basketball team. So I'm the head basketball coach at Warby Christian I did Christian not know school. that. She said she was manager in, in school. Yeah. For the, yes. So uh, she was great. She helped mm. us out. The managers kind of, well, I mean, you were just saying this isn't good. The manager, manager carry the water for the guys and, uh, you know, make sure that, that everything's going well. But it's been fun to get to know Linda, sweet girl, and uh, goes to Waterloo Christian School, mm -hmm. obviously. Yep. Um, your family lives here. Your wife, and is it three daughters? Yes, three daughters. Three biological daughters. Yes. You referred to a daughter in Liberia. That's a spiritual daughter. That's one of the 48 orphans we... Yes. But, and they're our children. We don't refer to them as orphans. We refer to them as our children. As our children. Because we want to give them a sense of belonging to a family. Yeah. So just say something about this orphanage thing. I forgot to mention that. What are you doing with the orphans or the children? The orphans we have, because of the care we give to them... We operate our orphanage in, not in a traditional sense where they're all dumped in one, under one roof and they're libelled orphans. Mm. We, we saw that to not to be kind of not, you know, when we saw that to be not helpful to their growth. So what we do is we take two of them and post them with a family at a time who can take two, a man and his wife. So they wake up every morning to a mother the figure or to a father the figure. But we feed them in their home. We pay for their clothing. We pay for their schools. We pay for their food. When they're sick, we pay for their medical bill in their house. All the family have to do is they should train them up just like they are training their own kids and relate to them just like they are relating to their own kids. That way the kids grow up and wake up every morning to a father the figure and a mother the figure. So that's what we're doing. We have 48 of them. If we were not, if, if our care for them was not so straightforward and tedious and very good and very cohesive, we would have had hundreds of them now. But 48 are the only ones we can handle right now because of the costs in keeping them. I sit here, I have nine of them in the house with me. 
So in the morning, it's a war over one bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but you're used to that, right? Sleeping in the bathroom. I mean, you had to get out of the way. Kind of use it. Thankfully, behind my house, it's a sandy area, and there are like seven shovels in the house. <laughs> you know what that means. <laughs> so I, I, I put the rules down and say, no boy go in the bathroom this morning. Only girls. Hmm. Tell me this now. So your family, mm-hmm. uh, your wife and three biological daughters mm-hmm. live here, and you kind of split time between here and Liberia. How, how did you come to the decision for your family to live here and how do you navigate this whole situation where you're away and you're back? And um, I mean, I'm sure that's been difficult on your family. And so how have, you, how have you done that? It was not as good as it sounds today, yesterday. I used to be, I used to be in Liberia. In fact, the first time I went, I am in school in, in, in Baltimore and doing my master's in theology and it was the last year for me to get um, my American passport so that I would be allowed to go back and forth for the work. And after all of that happened, I needed to go back. But the war there was, how are you going to do with the kids and your wife? Mm-hmm. So my wife and I got together and we decided, she decided I would stay with the kids and you go back and forth and do what you love to do. That woman is a hero. So I go on the computer and I type the saviest state in America and I.O. popped up. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm serious. Saviest <laughs> states in America, Iowa popped up. So who do we know in Iowa and where do we start? And then I got to do investigation and I, I, I discover I'm from the village in Africa and I discover there's a small farming town in Iowa called Waterloo. <laughs> So I took my wife, threw her on the, on the Greyhound bus. I said, go wherever they call Waterloo. Just go there, get a job, and get an apartment. And when the kids' school closed in June, I'll be there with them. Wow. So my wife comes here. She looks for some Liberian. She stays with them. It's all the work of faith, providence. So she saw some Liberian. She's perched with them in the house. She found a job. She got a job, and she got an apartment. Here in Waterloo? Yeah. Here how, how do you just find Liberians? They're not hard to find. It's a community. You just call people and they say, uh, who from Liberia lives in Waterloo? And then they go, oh, Gloria lives there. This person lives there. Huh. That person lives there. Awesome. And then, oh, do you have any contact for any of them? And then they give you the contact and you call. You say, look, we want to move over to that place. And can I stay with you for a month or two until I get a job and apartment? Come on over. Hmm. Two bedroom. And you got like 10 people in there? That's perfectly sweet. So June comes and then the kids' school closed. 2 a.m. in the morning, I throw them in the old car and we hit the road. And then uh, close to 20 hours later, we're in Waterloo. I ain't even got a place to sleep. <laughs> that was so cool. And we got here and um, I took them from church to church for I think three weeks I was here before, before leaving I took them from church to church, and we found out that my kids didn't like those churches. Then one time they decided to walk to Cedar Valley, and they went to Cedar Valley, and my daughters called me, and they said, I think we have found, found a church that believes what we believe. They believe in missions. Hmm. Soon as we left that church, cards came flying through our mailbox to thank us for coming. I think that's the place for us to be. Hmm. She works all night and she comes home in the morning sleeping with her head already. 
but she has to go to the uh, women Bible study at Cedar Valley on Tuesday morning. And then she met um, Shirley Buck. And Shirley asked her, where's your husband? You, are you married? She goes, yeah. He said, where's your husband? He's in Africa. Doing what? He's planning churches. <laughs> uh, what was the last time he ever came by? He said, no, he hasn't been by since he went last year. But he promised us he would be back this year, provided if God provides a plane ticket. The time my wife showed to Shirley that she was going to come, time came and passed. Probably Shirley went and wrote that time on her door. So she came back in that morning and said, where's your husband? Is he in town? She said, no. Uh, we, he tried to come, but he, he couldn't get the plane ticket to come. Shelly went and gave a sleepless night to her husband, Brian Buck. And Brian went around, and I don't know how he did it, but him and a group of guys got together and they bought the ticket for me to come here. When I got here, I explained what I do to Africa, and he was like, I can't believe this guy. But I have to go check it out. And Brian took Shirley by fit. They came. They saw the work. And he go, wow. And that is just, that's just how it happened. I don't know what else you want me to say. But all I can say here is um, Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10. The word of God says, who can despise the days of small things? Who can overlook the days of small things? You know? Who cannot see potential where potential needs to be seen? So that's, that's the kind of people they are. They, they, they just they came, they simply saw the willingness to turn the country Liberia upside down. They jumped right on. They became a part, and where the flight is about to take off in that country. So what year did you first send your wife here to come to Waterloo? Uh, 2016. 2016? Yes. Wow. And... So now you've set up this Greater Grace, Ministry, Greater Grace Ministries of Liberia. By the way, we've got some handouts about those. We'll put them on the table in the back. You can learn more about it. You've got a website probably? Uh, we don't have a website yet. But um, you will. Yeah, Brian is rehearsing how to set up a website. When, as soon as he sets it up, we'll have it. <laughs> the old dentist. <laughs> He's a webmaster now. Uh, so tell but, me about But hey, his, his information is on this uh, brochure. You can pick it up back there and you know who to get in touch with. So what exactly? Is Greater Grace encompassing the orphanage, the church planting, the Bible college, all that stuff? Or is it emphasizing one of those? Or Yeah, what? it's emphasized under Greater Grace Ministries of Liberia. Re- remember, I hate to say my. I, it's, it's, it sounds arrogant to me. That's... As I plant churches and preach as a pastor, I thought, well, the best thing to do is to train leaders who will go to other places and maybe take after me tomorrow when I'm not here. Mm -hmm. So I'm opening a Bible seminar to train leaders. This is is why we do Bible college and seminar every year. And we just graduated 121 people this gone June. Every year we do that. We recruit more people. And then we go to the village and we'd carry a team of 10 to 15 people in that village. And we are there for like 15 days trying to identify a piece of land and start a church on it. The building in which we start the church is the school building for the children also weekly. So that is how we plant churches simultaneously with schools in the villages to train the children. And to... I was in a congregation, I was sitting in a congregation without pants when I was young in the interior. 
And somebody went there and said I was good behaving. And they took me from, from among hundreds of children and brought me to town to go to school. If I can't do such a thing for other villages and for other children, then my life is not what it's supposed to be. You, you keep saying the interior when you were younger. Is, are you saying interior? Yeah, I am, I'm talking about a typical village. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking about a typical village. What, what else is going on with Greater Grace Ministries? And where do you, where do you, I mean, you said that the Lord's about ready to start a fire in, in Liberia, spiritually speaking. Yeah. What, where do you see that going? What's going on there that makes you think that? We just, uh, from last year, December up to May of this year, we planted eight brand new churches. And as soon as I get off the plane, we're going to plant two, one in the imam's village and one in another girl's who accidentally fell and broke her legs twice, village, so that she can't. Uh, travel on that road to go to school so she can't hurt herself again. She's terrified just by walking on that road. But what is going on in Liberia right now is we are beginning to sense that God is about to bring the subsidies we need to work with by just look at what is happening here. This never happened before. You never know what publicity this kind of time we're having here we have on the ministry. You never know what impact it's going to have on the ministry. I just so much believe that God is about to do something by the help of some people because this is what we believe. Because we do what we do, we are not super people. So we are the goers, but somebody can be an encourager. Somebody can be a giver. Somebody can be a prayer person to follow us with their prayer. So when you pray, when you encourage us through letters and text messages that some people do, especially when you donate to enable us to do the work, some money or whatever you can donate to help us to do the work, you are a goer just as we are. We got boots on the ground. Physically, you got boots on the ground. Um, you got boots on the ground indirectly. I believe that. Some gave us on this earth will be more blessed in heaven than even some of the goers. Hmm. So what we are expecting in Liberia right now is... Hang on, I want to... Yes. You said some givers yep. will be blessed more in heaven than some, of, than the some of the goers. Yes. And that has to do, I assume what you mean, is with the faithfulness of what they're giving to. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So um, in Liberia right now... Our ministry is growing so much. We are making so much progress numerically. And with what we do, we are so tactful with how we do what we do. So much that is beginning to claim the attentions and the focuses of people. Because of this, infrastructurally, we need to step it up a little. Because where we are at now, we can only minister to people at our level, infrastructure-wise. So we are now planning to plan to build a building, a three-story building that will host the Bible College and Seminary and host the Academy, the Gray School. And then when the Bible College students come from all walks of life, some of whom are married people and well-respected people in their villages, they will now have a better place to sleep. Right now, the low place we have, which is a one-classroom, our church, It's where the group of people we bring can sleep. These are fathers, these are husbands, these are church leaders from other places. They're, they're cranked up together in very small place with one bathroom. 
one very little bathroom, just one bathroom, African, typical African bathroom. So we're about to erect a building that we're trusting God for. We got the land already. We got the money to fence the property so that no enclosure will get on it. And we are about to start to build this building so that, and we expect this building to give our ministry in Liberia a fist lift. So we'll be able to tap into the next group of people who can come down here. But when we are here, they can come. And when they come, they will not be disappointed because we got the stuff. Because Christ got the stuff through his words to give them. So that is, those are some of the things that are going on right now in Liberia. That's awesome. I, I don't know if anybody who's in our live audience has any questions you'd like to ask. But I'd certainly entertain that. I'll just repeat them through the mic. If not, no big deal. I mean, we weren't planning on that, but it just kind of dawned on me that somebody might have a question. Ask any question. It can be a personal question. How much do you eat? <laughs> Certainly you're enjoying that Coca-Cola right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's tradition. If there are any questions, that's fine. Um, how, how? Go ahead. <coughs> Let's get a mic here. If he had the financial wherefore, how many churches could he plant in the next year? If finances weren't an issue. I wonder if he doesn't know the answer to that already. I don't. Don't you? Yeah. Okay. If we have the money, if we have the finances to plant a church, we can plant between 15 and 20 churches in one year. 15 and 20? 15 to 20 churches in one year. Okay. Where are you getting these? I was going to ask this question. Where are you getting these uh, Bible college students? How do you recruit them? We are out... Um, four days in a week with gospel tracts, with a bunch of gospel tracts in every street corners, just passing out tracts and telling people God loves them. Who's we? You and... Our church, Greater Grace, our staff. Okay. So we're out doing that. And then when somebody stops and takes a tracts from us, we got information about Bible college, our church services, and everything we do on it. And... Uh, Three out of five, we always get a call by, oh, you got a Bible college? What is it all about? And then once we explain it to them, and when somebody calls me like that, you set yourself up to be chased for the rest of your life. <laughs> These are some of the reasons I'm out six in the morning, and, and I don't go home till 10 in the night, because I have to make sure I visit all of these people. Where are you now? I got something, I got, I got an interesting uh, Bible literature that you will want to read. I don't want to give you a Bible literature, even though I have it, but I want to come and see you face to face and drag you into Bible college. How Three, much? You, yes. Go ahead, go ahead. Three out of five, most of the time, we recruit the, the members, the, the students that way. Some of them go and tell other people in other churches, and they also come to us begging us to take their students. Wow. And then these students, this is how we train them. We just don't train them theoretically. Theoretically, We train them in classroom, and we have them in the street trying to practice what the knowledge we give them in the classroom. We assign them to villages. Each, some group travels every month. Every, we're sending people in different villages and towns to go practice what they have learned. And when they go out like that to do something physical... That act of going out, we call it practicum, and then we grade them for it and give them a grade point for that also. 
added to their theoretical thing to do in classrooms in the class. So by the time they graduate, there are four church planters. If you were to say, how can I, how can I be a part of this? Let me say this. Um, what did I want to say and how did I want to say it? Matthew chapter 28. Teach all nations. Then again, another verse will be Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The word of God is a life. It's sharper than two edges sore. Let's, start, let, let's pack the bus right there. If the word of God is a life, according to Hebrews chapter 4, when the Holy Spirit brings it in me, I don't want to be the dead end. Hmm. I don't want to be the graveyard. Where every living thing dies. I want to be able to pass it on. The more we pass life on, life spreads, life grows, people get saved, marriages get saved, people get snapped out of habits. Amen. So, so, th- so that's just basically what we do. This is just basically what we do. And what else can we do? I don't worry about death. That's why we go to some of the horrible places we go to the start churches. None of our church has an easy story. It starts on the rocky ground. So I, I don't worry about that. And, and I, don't, I don't discourage people with the, dip, with the news of what's going to happen to you if you go there. I just say, here, this is the money to plant a church. Go to that place and start a church. Or I take them there. Midnight, I get in the car, leave all of them there and drive to town. They wake up the next morning, they don't see me, they got their instruction. Mm. Bam, church is built. Mm. You don't worry about things like that. You don't worry about the difficulty. You don't worry about death. You know all I worry about when I go to bed? Location, location, location. You got people who might be going to hell. We want to relocate them Hmm. to heaven. It's, that's all I worry about. I do not worry about what's going to happen to me if I went there. What's going to happen to me if I said this to this person? Mm-hmm. Two times I've gone to, uh, one second, two times I've gone to uh, Walmart to pass out gospel tried and tell people God loves them. And Walmart called police on me in Waterloo. <laughs> the car came and put me out the first time. It's cold. I'm from Africa. I don't do cold. No. <laughs> so the car put me out. Second time again, it's cold. I can't go by in a week time without giving out trust to somebody and telling them Jesus loves you. I go back into the same Walmart. <laughs> they call the cap again. It happens to be the same police. <laughs> Guy comes over and he calls me out. He said, you got to leave. I said, where do I go next? He said, maybe the staple. <laughs> I got in my car. I drove the staple. It's cold over there. Nobody's inside staple as there in Walmart. Who would I go talk to? So why I'm arriving at Staples, just to me to continue to be a good guy, Kev drives behind me again. I look him in his face. I said, what has Jesus done to you at all? I am not afraid of telling anybody about Jesus. If it, got, if it has to be the rough way, it has to be the rough way. <laughs> I've been thrown in jail in Morocco for giving Bible to somebody. He said, do you know the consequences of what you've just done? You can be killed here. You can be thrown into jail for your lifetime. I said, Put me in jail. I will start a church here in Morocco. You let me go out free. I'll go to my wife and children. 
He went on and said, that guy's nuts. Because <laughs> we went with Bible in that country with people from here. All the, all the, all the people that look, like, that look like Matt, they said, who is your leader? They said, that black guy right there. <laughs> so what should I do? I got to prove to be tough. So I'm not, I'm, not, I just, I'm not just afraid. And police guy stood there tapping his foot. He's thinking about what to say. And he came over to me, very close to me. He said, sir, I'm not here because I want to give you trouble. <laughs> I grew up in a Christian home. The two encounters I have had with you have just made me to think twice about what I want to do with my life when it mm. comes to Christ. My mother is a, is a Christian. My dad is a Christian. If my mother and father ever heard that I threw a Christian out of Walmart for giving gospel try, they would kill me. <laughs> <laughs> you got another question? Yeah, uh, it's first Angela. of all, I've been so blessed by your <coughs> sharing. Thank you so much. Um, can you tell us uh, kind of how much it, it costs to build a church in American currency? To build or to, to plant? Because well, there might be two different things. Church. It's, um, it's 1500 to plant one church. Don't laugh. It is funny. When, you, when people hear it here, 1500 to plant a church. And this is what we do. In case you want to know what that is going to do. We carry a team of about 15 people. Out of that money, we do transportation. We take a little portion and give it to the man we are going to post in that village with that new church. To his wife to make, to make a little bit of merchandise business to sustain her while the husband is gone. We buy paint tablets. We buy some initial school curriculum books for children who are, going to start, who are going to start school as soon as we start the church. And we have food for the team to go. And then we have a little token to give to the town people for giving us the property that will give us to build the church on. So 1,500 can start a church from beginning to a full-blown church. <laughs> That's crazy. Yes. So that way we don't have to be the only people who go. You go with us too when you do that. And what a life you have sitting in your couch and you are like, I have a church operating and touching people's life in the Republic of Liberia, in this village or in this town because of me. A church of God is thriving. How is it sustainable after that $1,500 is spent? How is that sustainable? After, like, you know, now, you've got the initial startup of yes. 1500 bucks. Yes. And then what? When we go to that village and we start that church, we ask them to give us a potential church leader from that village. They give us one or two guys. We bring them to town. While they're in Bible college, our own Bible college graduates are in that village from time to time. They are changing just to stay with that church. Why the leaders we took to town come there twice a month to spend the Sunday and the weekend with their church and with their family and with their hometown. Hmm. For four years, we do that back and forth. That's what we used the 1500 for. We spread it over four years, period, for transportation, for any unforeseeable thing. After the guy graduates... We bring him back to his town to present him to his church and to his hometown. It's a big program. Before we do that, we introduce an agricultural program to this church where we bring an expertise from the agricultural ministry to teach them how to grow this crop that they have identified to grow. 
And the cost of that agricultural program we introduced to the church for sustainability purpose is, is uh, $2,100. $2,100. When we give them the $2,100, all of that information is in this brochure. When we get that, that $2,100, what happens with that money is we buy the seeds... We pay the, the expertise, the guy, the expert from the Minister of Agriculture to help them when to water it, how to, how to make it grow, and this and that. And when it grows up, we take our pickup there, they harvest the, 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 the products, we bring it to town, we sell it for them, and they leave some of the food there to their village so the church can survive on it uh, during the non-farming uh, uh, season. And then they also leave some seeds so they can be able to plant it next year. So that one money is going to sustain that town and that church and is going to save people from hunger for decades and decades to come. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's what we do. That's the model. Question right back here. Yes, ma'am. Hang on. Wait for the mic. It's fascinating, Alfred. I did not know they were fascinated from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Is it... Is it pro proper for females to want to go to your college of Bible study? Yes. How many we'll, do you have? Is it, is it proper? Yeah. Is it okay for females if they are interested? Because you've always been talking about men. Yes. Because the females can be team members. The females can be pastor's wives. The females are going to be mothers. And they're bringing up future leaders and pastors also. So females are even the best people we want in the, in the Bible college because they train up generations with the knowledge of God. They are even louder than we the men. We're going to watch a video uh, with Senator and Barbara Grassley that they cut later this week. And uh, Senator Grassley talks about the role that his mom played in leading him to Christ. So, I mean, and he gives a good shout out to moms for the role that they play. That's good. Um, as I think about the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, you know, we have a lot of plans in the future and a lot of vision. I'm excited about what the Lord might do here. Um, it's going to cost a lot of money. But the thing that keeps me awake is not the money. The money's going to come, right? But what keeps me awake is really begging the Lord to help us stay faithful. We're building on a 100-year foundation. Hmm. And I don't think faithfulness comes from men and women. I think faithfulness comes from God through men and women. And so when people say, what can we pray about for the Cedar Falls Bible Conference? Hmm. I think they expect me to say something other than that, like money for facilities or staff or... And those things will all come. We're going to need those things eventually if the Lord does what I think he might hear. But really my number one prayer request is spiritual in nature. Do you identify with that? And what would be your number one prayer request for the ministry that you're leading? That has been my problem all the time with Dr. Buck. Um, like I went to the Bethany Church last two Sundays to preach. And after preaching, one old guy and his wife comes over to me. And she goes, how can we help you? And I said, 
pray. And then this is like a typical old school mother. She looked me in the eye and said, I am not asking you. I know I pray. But I'm, t- I'm asking you, what can we do physically to enhance your work? There's mm-hmm. a lot going on in your backyard. Then I called one of the elders from the church. I said, come here. You don't just go to another person's church and you start to engage their people for money. I am very skeptical when it comes to that. Most of the time, Brian tells me you got to pick up the courage and tell people exactly what they want to hear. And now I'm learning it and I'm getting used to it. And we got three prayer points this, uh, that I just put out a few days ago and sent to him. Number one. I said I believe that God is about to, through good, well-meaning people, give us the subsidies we've been waiting for for 20 years to take our ministry to the next level in Liberia, to do even more, to do double what we're doing right now. I feel it. I believe in God. There's no reason why he should not make those things to happen. While they're on their way coming, I need you to pray that as a man born in an impoverished country who has never seen some of these things before. Like somebody sending a container of books for library to be divided among people. That's a huge thing. Why these things are on their way, please, pray for me that I will continue to be a humble man. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, we've graduated almost all of our students in Liberia in the Bible College and Seminary and I, I refuse to to operate that Bible college and seminary were under 100 students. So we graduated most of our students, and we are begging God to give us 70-plus more students this year and next year. So please continue to pray for that one. Those are areas that I want us to pray, and that everybody we work with in Liberia will remain humble. The newly planted churches we have planted will continue to thrive. So pray for those things. And you know, and I know when I say things like that, I'm not saying we are super people. We need all the help in the world, but I don't put that first. If all the help in the world comes to the wrong people, it's not going to make any impact. So pray for us that we will remain strong. And I thank you for your love. Your love you have for Christ. And you, it's been a long day. Here you are still sitting down here and showing us love sitting here. Maybe most of the love is for me because you always got mad. So you're here because of me. <laughs> Amen. But, uh, and I want to thank you. I don't want to take this for granted. Love is not just what I know to do that is right. Love is doing some things that are not within my reach. Some people might be sitting here or under the voice, under our voice by the internet by way of the internet, and contemplating, what can I do? Am I even able to do this? Oh, this is COVID time. Things are tough. Nothing is working. Let me say this to you. You got love bubbling inside of you right now for the work of God. I just want you to know that while listening to us and while building us up, love is also doing the things that are not common these days. I think that is enough. I'm going to close with prayer. This has been a great interview. Wow. I thank you for your time. Good? Yeah, man. Good. All right. 
Um, Dan, we're going to move this background back there, and Alfred needs to get his picture taken in front of the background before he leaves. One more. Okay. Heavenly Father, um, we just want to thank you for this really unplanned opportunity to hear about what you're doing through Alfred, what you've done, how you've brought him to this place, what you're doing through him in, in Liberia. Uh, I want to raise up the prayer request that he listed, that they would have the resources they need to do what you're calling them to do, uh, that you would help him to stay humble and that you would help the churches that are being planted to stay under the authority of your word and humble. And, and we pray that you would provide 70 new students for their Bible college in the next year or two. You've done amazing things to get them to this point. There's no reason to imagine that you're not going to continue to work. Mm. And uh, as you do, we pray that the truth of your gospel would go forth. The truth of your word would be advanced in a culture that is uh, deceived by Islam, in a culture that is deceived by false gospels, and that you would uh, give Alfred what he needs to lead uh, this ministry and this calling well. That you'd surround him with people that he needs, uh, students, pastors, encouragers here. And we just thank you for the opportunity to get a glimpse into this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The CC Podcast is part of Christian Crusaders Radio and Internet Ministry, started in 1936 and is one of America's longest-running radio ministries. We are 100% donor-funded, and donations to our ministry are 100% tax-deductible. So if you are encouraged, challenged, or inspired by today's conversation, please consider making a donation on our website, christiancrusaders.org, or mail a check to Christian Crusaders, 7401 University Avenue, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613. In addition to our other podcasts, which I mentioned at the front of this episode, I want to mention two of our other ministry partners worth checking out. First, the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, equipping believers with the truth of God's Word since 1922. Visit cedarfallsbibleconference.com for free access to previous conference content or for more information about upcoming events. Second is Power to Change Digital Strategies, an online ministry partnering volunteer Christian mentors with people around the world searching the internet for answers. If you or someone you know could benefit from an anonymous online conversation with a caring Christian adult, go to issuesiface.com. Or if you would like to be a volunteer Christian mentor, please visit p2cdigital.com. That's the letter P, the number 2, and the letter C, digital.com. See our episode notes for details and links. And remember to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. God's richest blessings to you, and thanks again for listening.